your Bibles this morning, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. If you're able to stand with me as we read the scripture this morning. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll drop down to verse 39 after that. Luke 2, beginning verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Drop down to verse, 39, verse 39. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessing upon the message this morning. Tune our hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We're coming now in our study of Luke to the birth of Jesus. I feel there's a lot for us to say about this passage, this chapter, really. What I don't want to do is I don't want to write a really long sermon, talk really fast, cut out important points, and try to crush it all into a 50-minute time period. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm going to probably preach two, maybe three topical sermons on the text and then come back through at the end and kind of go through it verse by verse. I want to make sure we cover everything in here that we need to cover and not rush through it. This morning I want to focus on supposed contradictions in the birth story of Jesus. I say supposed because there are no contradictions in the Bible. But skeptics... Boy, skeptics love to find contradictions, don't they? They love, they they don't know the Bible. You've you've met them. I've met them. We all know them. I met a thousand of them in Las Vegas. They, 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 you know, well, you, do you wear mixed fabrics in your garments? Then you don't believe the Bible. I said, well, where is that found in the Bible? I don't know. Then you can't use the argument because you don't know the context. Well, the Bible says thou shalt not judge. I said, no, there's only 10 commandments, and that's not one of them. Well, doesn't the Bible say it's wrong for you to preach in public for people to see you? No, no, it doesn't. They like to find things in the Bible they can use, but they don't actually know the Bible. And as I I was studying this chapter, I was bombarded online by skeptics who were pointing out that this story makes no sense. It's historically inaccurate and full of contradictions. I thought, let's address that today. Is this full of contradiction? I would say, no, it's not. We need to understand, though, church, we in the Bible do not have a collection of fairy tales. Okay? Our faith in the Word of God has to be founded upon the fact that we don't believe fairy tales. All right? This is not Mother Goose. This is not Aesop's Fables. Okay? 
we don't follow cunningly devised fables, but we believe what eyewitnesses have told us. In fact, Luke, we covered this in the introduction, is a man, a, a historian, who spoke extensively to eyewitnesses to verify the facts he was including in his book. We have historical accounts of real events that actually happened in the Bible. It's important to remind ourselves of this truth. There was an actual night where an actual baby was born named Jesus. Contrary to the song, he did cry. He was a real human baby. And he was born the way real human babies are born. He is real. It actually happened. There was a king who searched for him out to kill him. There were men who traveled from the east to worship him. There were shepherds in the field. The sun rose. The sun set. It's real history that we have in the Bible. We need to understand that. Because too many people who profess Christ, they approach the Bible as if it's stories. And then someone comes along and goes, well, history proves that wrong. And they go, oh, I guess it must be wrong. Never thinking, maybe history is wrong. Maybe the secularists are wrong. I'm going to mention this later on. I'm going to jump ahead of my notes a little bit. But if you're a student of history, I love history. I love history. I'll give my wife historical facts that she doesn't even care about just because I know them. I love history. But history changes, right? We've, we discover something new. Oh, this was wrong, so let's correct it. Because So history is constantly correcting itself based on new evidence. So why do we hold the Bible on trial against secular history? which can't decide what actually happened. It constantly changes their story. Shouldn't secular history be held on trial against the word of God? If we believe these are actual events that actually happened and our Bible is actually inspired by the Holy Ghost, by God himself, do you think God makes mistakes? If he does, if he got the Bible wrong, then we're all lost. We have no, if he can't get his Bible right, how can he get our redemption right? God's word is why he's trustworthy. So how do we reconcile seeming contradictions in the Bible? That's what I want to look at today. How do we look at this story against the contradictions and say, what actually happened? I want to, I want to show you today. You're going to have to come up against this at some point. If you're out in the world preaching the gospel, somebody's going to come to you, some skeptic, and say, that's not accurate. That's false. That's wrong. How do we answer that? How do we silence our objectors? That's the question. Let's start here in Luke chapter 2. The first thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is probably the biggest contradiction that's put out there by skeptics, and that is in verses 1 and 2. Look at that with me. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. Now, when it says tax, I want you to understand, and some Bibles read register, that's, it was a registration for taxation purposes. There's no contradiction, even between Bible versions, there's no contradiction there. This was a taxing. They registered people and then they taxed them in the Roman Empire. Okay, that's what's going on here. 
Some have claimed that under the Roman Empire, a census like this would never be taken at all. Listen to Dr. John Elder. I'm going to give you a lot of historical quotes from historians who argue that there's a lot of history we need to understand. Okay, Dr. John Elder says this, Archaeological discoveries prove beyond doubt that regular enrollment of taxpayers was a feature of Roman Empire rule and have shown that a census was taken every 14 years. A large Egyptian papyri telling of an enrollment in A.D. 174 to 175 refers to two previous enrollments, one in 160 to 161 and another in 146 to 147 at intervals of 14 years. A much earlier papyri dated in the reign of Tiberius, that's in 14 to 37 A.D., reports a man's wife in dependence for enrollment and apparently has a reference to a tax roll compiled in A.D. 20 to 21, Another shows an enrollment under Nero in A.D. 62 to 63. Another lists those exempt from the poll tax in the 41st year of Augustus, who began his reign in 27 B.C. Since Augustus records that he set about early in his reign to organize the empire, the first census may have been either 23 to 22 B.C. or in the range of 9 to 8 B.C. The latter would be the census to which the Gospel of Luke refers, end quote. In other words, when someone comes to you and says the Roman Empire didn't take tax censuses. So this is false. There is actual historical evidence. His, and listen, I need to stop and preface this. I'm a big believer in original sourcing. Okay? Um, conspiracy theories get blown way out of hand when you don't have original sources. Right? We have, I was reading, I was reading one thing. I was talking to a brother in Vegas about this. But there was this, this, this pagan festival, right, that was supposed to have existed before Christ, hundred years before Christ. And he's telling me about it. And he's doing, I said, I said, hang on, brother. I said, what's the earliest source you have for that festival? And he, he quoted the source he got it from. I said, that was written in 1400 AD. You're talking thousands of years removed from this ancient pagan festival. That's not history. That's conjecture. It can be completely fabricated. You wouldn't know it. It's, it's so far removed. So when I say history, I mean there are actual documents, papyri that we have, ancient documents, that this kind of a tax census took place. And we can go back to the, to the first century and say, see, this actually took place. That's important. Show original sourcing. Okay, don't, don't, don't choose things that are far removed from what you're talking about. When you're, when you're debating a skeptic, give them, because they'll never give you sources. They'll never give you sources. They'll always give you what they've heard, what they've seen on the internet. They'll copy and paste their argument, but they don't know why. Just like with the Bible, right? Uh, do you wear mixed fabrics? Yes, I do. You don't believe the Bible. Where is that in the Bible? Show me the source that you say it's wrong for me to wear mixed, mixed fabrics. You don't know. You just copied and pasted somebody else's argument to give to me. Right? We have actual history that backs up the Bible. Don't be afraid to use that. You're not going to convince them. Listen, a skeptic is not a skeptic because he lacks evidence. A skeptic is a skeptic because he loves his sin. Plain and simple. Romans chapter 1. We suppress the truth because we love unrighteousness. Uh, John chapter 3, right? Uh, this is the combination of light in the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, right? And those who do evil, they don't come to the light. Lest their deeds should be so. We know that their problem is not evidence. But I'm just telling you, we can still answer their objections and leave them without excuse. 
to bring it, always bring it back around to, not I have more evidence than you, but you have a sin problem. You have a sin problem that you don't want to deal with. And that's why you oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ, because you love sin. They'll use other arguments. Well, this doesn't make sense, or this, or they'll, they'll, they'll delve into philosophy. I had a guy in, in Vegas and didn't, didn't want to argue. And he gets into, well, the abstract view of the... I said, can I stop you for a second? I said, do you have a degree in, in, in uh, philosophy? He says, no. I said, did you minor in philosophy? He goes, no. I said, did you ever study philosophy? I said, no. He said, no. I said, well, let's bring this around to something that we both can understand. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. So let's get back to your sin. Oh, we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about God and the possibilities of other dimensions. I said, no, 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 we're not. We're talking about your sin. Your sin separates you from God. And you're grabbing at other things to try to sound rational, but you're not. You're irrational. You love your sin more than the God who you know exists. And that's the bottom line. So it's not evidence. So don't, don't, don't think you're going to convince them by giving them evidence. Give them evidence to take away their argument. And use as much as you can original sources. Don't, don't copy and paste. Research these things. Find out for yourself if they're true. It'll also strengthen your faith in the word of God. The next two supposed contradictions are based on this text and the text in Matthew chapter 2. Go ahead and turn over there for me. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1. So when someone says that the Roman Empire didn't take a census for tax purposes, you can say, no, they definitely did. There's evidence from the first century of such a thing happening. Matthew 2. Verse number one. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. So the general consensus here is that Herod, referred to here as Herod the Great. The other contradiction seen here is tied to this one. The historical records show that Serenius was governor of Syria and ordered a census about 10 years after the birth of Jesus. Ten years after. So how do we reconcile that? It says that Cyrenius ordered a census to be taken for the purpose of taxing. But we also know that Jesus was born during the time of Herod the Great, and Cyrenius ordered that ten years after the fact. We also have the problem of Herod the Great. He died around 4 B.C. This leads skeptics to say that Matthew or Luke were wrong and therefore the historical accounts of the scriptures can't be trusted. How do we answer these objections and strengthen our faith in the Bible? I believe there's strong evidence that Jesus was born around 6 BC. I lost my place. There we go. Which negates the argument about Herod. Herod died in 4 BC. We know that. So Jesus was born in 6 BC. He was born during the time of Herod the Great. We see from the text in Matthew that Herod wanted to kill the baby, so the angel sends the family down to Egypt. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 19. 
But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. Since Herod died the next year in 4 BC, the Bible here calls Jesus a young child. And I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's 5 BC, not 6. I believe Jesus was born in 5 BC during the time of Herod's reign. Since the Bible here calls Jesus a young child, not a baby or a grown older child, then we can assume a short amount of time has passed. A year seems like a good amount of time. In other words, Jesus was born in 5 BC. Then the angel sends them into Egypt until Herod dies in 4 BC. Remember, time counted down before Christ and counts up since Christ. And so we understand that within that year, Herod died and Jesus was allowed to come back to the land of Israel. So how do we answer the problem then of Cyrenius? Because Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Ten years later, Herod the Great was already dead. How could Cyrenius have ordered the taxing during the, the time that Jesus was born? The answer to this is, if you look at the historical record, it's very clear, very obvious. It took me about 20 minutes to figure this out. Cyrenius was governor of Syria twice in history. Twice. Now, none of the skeptics will tell you that. He was governor twice in history. There are modern parallels to this. Let me give you a couple. The first is Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel. He has served as Prime Minister on several occasions, 1996 to 1999, and again from 2009 to 2021. Then he assumed office again in December of 2022. So if you were to speak 100 years from now, 200 years from now, and say this happened during the Prime Ministership of Benjamin Netanyahu, well, that could span anywhere from 1999 to 2024. Because he was prime minister several times, right? Another example would be uh, our president, Grover Cleveland. He was in office from 1885 to 1889. He lost an election and was elected again from 1893 to 1897. So history needs to be understood in that context. There was two separate presidencies for Grover Cleveland. So if you say this happened during Grover Cleveland's time, someone says, oh, no, it was five years before his time. Well, he was president five years before that. The first time. The same thing is being said here of Cyrenius. He was governor of Syria two different times in his life. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Cyrenius held a consulship from January to August of 12 BC. Soon after, he gained the honor of a triumph for reducing the fortresses of a tribe in Cilicia. Keep in mind that in 47 BC, under Julius Caesar, the area was joined to Syria. After his victory, he would have been made governor of the region. Tacitus guesses that his reign at, at this time would have been from 4 to 1 BC, but it's more likely he would have been given that governorship more closely to the time of his victory in 12 BC, meaning that he was governor of Syria from 12 BC to sometime around 4 or 1 BC. It should also be noted that Justin Martyr of the early church three times asserts that our Lord was born under Cyrenius and appeals to some register as proof of it. It seems likely that Cyrenius was twice governor of Syria on two different occasions and carried out two distinct registrations. This would be very important to our, our point this morning. The first one brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. The second one, about 10 years or so later, is mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Turn there with me. Acts 5, 37. Acts 
I know I'm throwing out a lot of information today. Anybody who wants my notes with all the dates and stuff, just let me know. I'll print you off copies of my notes to take home and study the dates and all the quotes and everything as well. This is more of an apologetics lesson, I think, but we'll continue on. Acts 5.37. I was after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. This is talking about false Christ, false messiahs that rose up uh, during different times in history. The incident here was from the second taxing after the one where Christ was born. So this is not during the time of Luke chapter 2, okay? This is after that time. Uh, this is from the Jewish... Before I get to this quote, let me, let me stop. So what, what, what we have happened here, to make sense of the text historically, Serenius is governor of Syria after a great victory, right? From probably 12 B.C. down to 4 or 1 B.C. He orders a census to tax the people. So he orders everyone to return back to their hometown to count them for the taxing. So Joseph and Mary, they go back to Bethlehem. They give birth to Christ. All that takes place, transpires. Serenius is unseated, unseated from his position. Ten years later, he gets the position back again. And what does he do? He follows up with the taxing that never took place, that he ordered. He took all the registers. He, took, he, got, he got the taxing ready to go. But the taxing never took place. And so now he's back in office and going, now it's time to collect on what I did previously. And so this man, Judas, rises up in Galilee, doesn't want to be taxed, doesn't believe the Roman Empire should be taxing the Jews, and he leads rebellion. He lifts himself up as a false Christ, as a false Messiah, and he's put down by the Romans. It seems unlikely that a man would rise up and start a revolt simply because he had to be counted in the census, Right? But when the actual taxing took place, that's when the rebellion happened. And so they're separated by 10 years. From the Jewish historian Josephus, he said, Serenius was charged with the business of taxing the people and likewise directed to seize on the money and effects that had belonged to Archelaus. At first, the Jews were extremely uneasy at this mode of taxation, but they were at length induced to submit to it. About this time, one Judas, a Galanite from the city of Gamala, began to distinguish himself, this man, combined with a Pharisee named Sadducus, enticed the people to revolt. The Greek word for tax is the same in both Luke and Acts, and was used for registering persons and property and collecting on the registration. So it's unlikely the simple registration of, Acts, of Luke 2 would invoke a revolt. But when they were actually taxing the Jews and taking money from them, that would have sent them into revolt. Josephus explains that the Jews resisted the actual taxing and that Judas chose this time of unhappiness to revolt. It seems likely that these are two sides of the same coin. The first taxing was the enrollment, and after a few years, the taxes were levied, and this led to the revolt we hear about in Acts chapter 5. Go back to our text in Luke chapter 2. Does that make historical sense what I'm saying? See, skeptics would say, well, this doesn't make No, it does make sense. Historically, there's evidence for all of this to take place. Luke 2, verse 2. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Catch on to that, right? First made. That implies a twofold action. The taxing that Jesus and them were, was born under was first made 
when Cyrenius was governor of Syria the first time. And then it was levied during his second reign ten years later. Another objection to this story is that there is no historical precedent for Joseph to bring Mary with him. This is historically inaccurate. In the early 20th century, a papyrus was discovered which contained an edict by G. Vibius Maximus, the Roman governor of Egypt, where he says, and I quote, since the enrollment by households is approaching, it is necessary to command all for any reason who are out of their own district to return to their own home in order to perform the usual business of taxation. They were actually ordered to take their whole family and return to their home of origin. On the same papyri, we find confirmation of Luke's claim that a man had to bring his family with him when he traveled to his place of ancestry in order to be properly counted by the Roman authorities. Let me quote from this register. I'm going to do the best I can. These names are wild, okay? I'm going to do my best I can. So I quote from the, from the papyri. I register Pekepkis, the, the son born to me, and my wife Teoses, Teoses, and Teopis in the 10th year of Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus Imperator and request that the name of my aforesaid son, Pekepkis, be entered into the list. In other words, he brought his whole family and had to bring them and show them to the Roman authorities to have them registered. So someone says, there is no historical evidence that Mary and Joseph would travel together. There is ample historical evidence that this actually took place. The late George A. Barton, Ph.D., professor of biblical literature and Semitic languages at Bryn Mawr and former director of the American School of Oriental Research in Jerusalem commented on this. He says, Luke's statement that Joseph went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to enroll himself with Mary turns out to be in exact accord with the governmental regulations as we now know them from the papyri. Another supposed contradiction is the trip to Egypt. Look at verse 39 of our text, Luke 39, Luke 2, 39. When they performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 2 again. Matthew 2, verse 19. I'm going to compare these two texts where people say we have a contradiction. I strongly say, no, we don't have a contradiction. Luke 2, I'm sorry, Matthew 2. Matthew 2, verse number 19. Bible says, But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel, but when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of Herod his father, his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he should be called a Nazarene. The accusation here is that Luke and Matthew contradict one another in what happened after the birth of Christ. Luke says that after they left the temple, after fulfilling the requirements of the law, they went straight to Nazareth. But Matthew says they went to Egypt, then to Nazareth. One thing about the Bible that we need to remember is that while it's giving us historical information, it's not a history book. The Bible is not an exhaustive history of all the events of mankind. No history book is. 
no history book is. Matthew includes the visit of the wise men and the journey to Egypt while leaving out the shepherds and the temple visit. Luke never says they went directly to Nazareth. He says that after they fulfilled all of the legal requirements, they returned to Galilee into Nazareth. The time in Egypt in between doesn't negate the fact of what Luke is telling us. Let me give you an example, a great example. There was a presidential motorcade. I was watching one time. This is back in the 90s. You know Bill Clinton, right? We all know Bill Clinton. His love of cheeseburgers. I'm watching the news one day. I'm a teenager. And the news says the president landed in Memphis. And the motorcade took him directly to his speech. Come to find out, he didn't go directly to his speech. He stopped to get a cheeseburger at McDonald's on the way there. Now, do we look at that and say, well, obviously this news person is, obviously President Clinton doesn't exist because we have two different stories. Or do we say that what the newscaster gave us was not an exhaustive list of all of his stops on the way there? Right? So this news channel included the McDonald's stop, and this news channel didn't include it, and yet both are telling the truth, and he really existed and had a cheeseburger. So we look at Luke and Matthew and say, well, Matthew says this and Luke says this. They're not giving an exhaustive history. So Matthew can be right and Luke can be right and Jesus still existed and was born in Bethlehem and went to Egypt and then went to Nazareth. Don't give them ground to cast doubt on the Bible. No history book is exhaustive. One of our presidents, forget his name now, the only president to never serve in office. He got sick during his inauguration and died from his sickness. I read one history book that says that he was taken from the inauguration directly to his bed. And another said that he stopped to use the restroom on the way. Which one's lying? Did that president even exist? Can we believe that there's even a White House? I mean, the stories don't match up. Of course not. They weren't giving exhaustive histories of everything he did. So some include one part, some include another part, but both are true. Let me give you a biblical example now. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 20. If you study history, you're going to learn no history book is exhaustive. You guys ever watched interviews about 9-11? You watch 19 people give you their story, the eyewitnesses who were there. You're going to hear 19 different sides of the story with facts coming and facts going. Do, should we just assume that 9-11 never happened? No skeptic would do that. No skeptic would do that. These writers in the Bible are giving us their own perspectives while still being moved along and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So God raised Jesus from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 3.
Acts chapter 1, verse number 3. The Bible says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So which is it, church? Which is it? Did he raise from the dead and be set at God's right hand, or did he raise from the dead and walk 40 days showing many infallible proofs of his resurrection? Which one is it? Who's lying? Is it Paul or is it Luke? Neither. Neither. Paul didn't include the information about the 40 days that Jesus was on earth showing himself alive, and Luke did. It, it wasn't pertinent to what Paul was trying to communicate in that passage. So you see how history works that way. So someone comes and says, well, Matthew says this, and Luke said, which one happened? Both. Luke was right. When they left the temple, they returned to Nazareth by way of Egypt, which Matthew tells us about. And both are true, without error. Again, history is not exhaustive. Luke is giving information that Matthew isn't, and Matthew's giving information that Luke isn't, and we have one complete story. Uh, take, for instance, the gospel accounts of uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, right? They each have something different written over Jesus' head on the cross, don't they? Skeptics love that one. Well, they don't agree what was written over the cross. But what happens if you take all four gospel accounts and you put all four together and what you have? You have a complete sentence. This is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And each of them include different portions of that statement. Is one right or one wrong? No. They're giving different information from a different perspective. But when you put it all together, it's a complete historical thought. It all makes sense. Each gospel writer gives us a different perspective on the same event. Some adding information that others don't have or elaborating on something that another writer didn't give us. I was watching a, <clears throat> a live stream of a car crash the other day. This car had crashed and it was like a, like a live streamer that just goes to car crashes, you know. I'm watching him and he says that uh, this car ran the red light and then they slammed on their brakes, they screeched the tires, they spun around and then they crashed into the tree. And I watched another live streamer who I switched to a different one. He's at the same crash site and he goes, here's what happened, folks. This car ran the red light and crashed into the tree. Do I assume the first guy is lying about the spinning around? No, of course not. He's adding information the other guy didn't have or didn't give. These aren't contradictions in the Bible, church. These are just historical accounts. In fact, if they all said the exact same thing, I think we'd have reason to doubt the Bible. They're just copying each other. Yeah. What we're seeing is genuinely the perspectives of the writers fitting into the inspiration so the Holy Spirit inspires them to write exactly what he wants us to have while keeping intact their own perspective. There's a vast difference in how John writes his gospel to how the other three write theirs. You know why? Because John was closer to Jesus than the other ones. He had a different perspective. Right? Matthew was a tax collector, a Jew. You go through his book, and I mean, it's, it's written like a tax collector would write a book. Heavily Jewish in nature. Luke is a physician. He's the only one to include the birth story of Jesus. He's the only one to include more healings and more medical things than other writers included. In other words, God allowed their personalities to remain while he inspired the word through them. And that's how we know that we have the word of God. 
It wasn't just everyone playing telephone and copying each other. They held their own perspectives, their own personalities, their own intricacies while conveying to us the word that God wants us to have. So, let me kind of bring this home. How do we apply this truth this morning? When we're faced with supposed contradictions in the Bible, we need to ask a couple of questions. The first one is, is secular history correct? That's important. Because the secularists, they put the Bible on trial against their history. But one thing you got to point out to a, to a skeptic is, your history constantly changes as new discoveries are made. You can't tell that this pharaoh lived during this time, or this time, or this happened, or, you know, evolution, they keep, it goes back more and more, 160 billion, 180 trillion, it just, it never stops. You're judging my Bible, which has been proven right throughout history, and the evidence against it is your ever-changing view of history. The correct question to ask is, is secular history correct? against the Bible. Judge the secularist in God's court. Don't put God on trial in their court. They don't have the grounds to judge him. He does. The unbeliever has every right to reject, every reason to reject the Bible. So they take the secular side of history. We need to stop judging the Bible by secular history. Too many Christians. That's the problem with our faith, though. Our faith is so phony. It's so flimsy today that you, you hear these people who are turning from the faith. They're, they're what's the term? Un, hmm? Apostasy. Deconstruction. Thank you, Kim. She shouldn't know that. Pray for her. They're deconstructing their faith. And more often than not, what causes them to do that? is they learn some new secular truth that casts doubt on what they believe about the Bible. Their faith was never in the Bible. Their faith was in a better argument. And when a better argument comes along, they just follow that new argument. Listen, the Bible is true and there's no better argument. Well, what if, the, what if this happens and it proves it to not be true? Then that's wrong. Because God is true. We must hold God as true and men as liars. Is secular history true? Listen, the Bible has been proven true over and over and over again. There was a time when secular history said that Pontius Pilate didn't exist. And they discovered he did. There was a time when secular history didn't believe that the uh, uh, Philistines were real. And they found they were. I remember when I was a teenager, I learned about, there's a big uh, to-do about the city of Jericho. Well, the Bible says the city walls fell, fell down. But the people, it says, went up into the city. Why would they go up if the walls fell down? Would they just walk over the broken walls? As a teenager, I was stumped. I don't know. Maybe the Bible's not true. I don't know what's going on here. In the 1950s, I think it was, Archaeologists discovered there were two walls of Jericho. As they examined the remains of the city, there was an interior wall and an exterior wall. And the wall that fell was the exterior wall that fell against the interior wall, forming a ramp. So the people literally went up 
into the city. It also explains how the wall could fall down and Rahab's house not be destroyed. Her house was built into the second wall. When archaeologists uncovered some of the ruins of the wall, they found there were houses built into the wall that didn't fall down. Once again, secular history is wrong. The Bible is correct. Get that in your heart. The Bible is right. Man is wrong. So when skeptics come against it, when they cast doubt, examine, are you judging God by your ever-changing history? The God who cannot lie? The God who knows the end from the beginning? Second question to ask is, do different facts mean there's a contradiction? Most contradictions are just different facts given by different authors in the Bible. Many times we hear witnesses give accounts of major events and there are differing details. One may include one detail, one may leave it out. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit decided what to record in the Bible. Every time secular history has contradicted the Bible, further discoveries always fell on the side of Scripture. It's perfect through and through, and it can be trusted. If we believe that this is the inspired and infallible and inerrant word of the living God, which I do, then our doubt should always be on the side of secular history. This story of the birth of Christ brings me great confidence in the reliability of the Bible. When we look back at the historical documents, everything it says in Luke happened. Everything that was said in Luke happened. It actually happened in history. God became a man. He was born of a virgin into this world to grow up, to obey God perfectly, to go to the cross as a sacrifice for my sins to make me reconciled with God. That actually happened. The Bible has said it. You ever heard someone say, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Listen, the Bible says it and that settles it whether we believe it or not. The Bible is true. Don't let this world cast doubts. Man, this world doesn't know what it wants, what it believes. It's changing constantly. We have an anchor, church, in the Word of God, and it can be trusted. God is trustworthy. God is true. Men are wrong. And we look at something like the birth story of Jesus, one of the, one of the greatest chapters the skeptics use to cast doubt on the Bible. We look at history, we see everything Luke said took place. Everything Luke said took place. Let God be true and every man a liar. Hold to the anchor of the word of God. This world is sinking sand. The rock is Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessing on this message this morning. I know it was a little bit different, but I wanted to express to our church the trustworthiness of the word of God. This world will try to cast doubt. They'll try to draw us away from our faith. But our faith is founded upon the inerrant word of God. It cannot be wrong. It's never wrong. The one who wrote it cannot lie. As we looked at this text today to see that everything Luke said, everything Matthew said was historically true and accurate. I pray it strengthens our faith in the word of God. That what we hold in our hands today is the re revelation of the God of heaven to his people.
that they can read it and trust it and by virtue of who God is, live their lives according to the word of God. God, make us, make us more confident in your word. These are troubling times. These are wicked, deceiving times. Great deception exists in our land today. We need the rock of the scriptures. We need the infallible word of God to know how to live, how to worship, how to obey, to see in this word the majesty and glory of the one who sits upon the throne, the great sin bearer, the lamb without stain, without spot, perfect and holy before God. To know that not only did you take upon yourself, Lord Jesus, our sins, but that you gave us your righteousness. And I know because the word tells me there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh God, if one is here today who is not saved, may they turn to you today and be saved. May May you open their heart to the gospel. May they call upon you by the faithfulness and trustworthiness of who you are. Bless all that we do. Bless the offering to come in Jesus' name. Amen.